Hello and welcome to Why It Matters. This is our second recording of 2021 and we try incredibly hard to be self-aware and hopefully for listeners who or watchers who have followed us uh, as we've launched this, uh, you've had the opportunity to listen to the why it matters that immediately preceded this. My name is Tracy Kronzak. As always, I'm here with my stalwart companion, Tim Lockie. Uh, And we are like just incredibly overwhelmed, but also very enthused to have today's discussion because coincidentally with no sort of planning around what was gonna happen in the United States, we are recording on Monday the 11th. Uh, What's happening on Monday the 11th? The House of Representatives is introducing the second wave of articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump for inciting insurrection against the American government and the thread of what America is and how these two discussions are gonna connect to each other is gonna be very, very upfront uh, for our listeners. So I don't know, Tim, anything to add before we turn it over to Durrell to introduce himself? Nope, it's a wild time. See what happens next. Yeah, holy cow, that's that's it. I love how you're just like, Tracy's super verbose, but now we're just gonna be like, yeah, it's a wild time and everything's nuts. Exactly, I mean, welcome to 2021. It's off with a a bang, right, so. Um, Well, I'm ecstatic to get this conversation going. Uh, Darrell, I would love to have you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about why and who you are, where you are and what you're doing. And feel free to be as colorful or elaborative as you want or need. Well, thank you so much, Tracy and, and Tim. Thank you for having me. Uh, yes, uh, wild. It, 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 you know, I think a couple months ago, we all thought that magically, you know, December 31st would come and it would just be like the end of this year and things would be better. Now it's just really starting to be like this continuation, 2020 part two you know, on so many levels, you know what I mean? What's going on from the political standpoint to this pandemic? I mean, if we think about the pandemic, you know, it was this promise of a vaccine and, 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 and there was this impression and I'll be, you know, maybe one of them, you know, we was told by the government, you know, 20 million would be, uh, you know, distributed by the end of the year. And I think I saw on this morning on my morning Peloton ride that we're still only what, maybe like 6 million. So, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm coining it 2020 part two, um, and maybe 2021 to actually start spring, summertime. Yeah, I don't know if any of us can deal with another summer, uh, with, with some of this going on, but, uh, thank you all for having me. Um, uh, my name is Darrell Booker. Uh, you know, what is my overall title for myself? I'm, I'm, I'm terming myself a tech strategist nowadays. I think that really sums up kind of uh, my evolution, uh, at least as it comes in the tech career. I think hopefully today we can talk about a lot of things other than just tech. Um, but uh, uh, I hate to say this because I feel like I'm telling my age, 26 years into tech, uh, 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 I guess an OG of the tech thing. Um, but I started very, very, very early. Someone, always, everybody always asks, well, how did you get started in tech? 
I, you know, I'll tell you a really quick story. My, uh, you know, my dad was the type and still is. Um, anything of his, first of all, you shouldn't touch it. But if you touch it, you better put it back exactly how it was uh, so he doesn't know you touched it. So uh, I remember he brought this thing called a computer and uh, I was very much the type that uh, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Um, summers are extremely hot and humid. Um, so, you know, my friends would come and ring the doorbell, say, Darrell, come outside. And I said, no, I'll come out after seven or eight when it cools down. Uh, so during the day, I was on this thing called a computer. And, um, you know, I thought I was breaking it and I thought I was doing stuff to it. And all I knew is by 430, when my dad pulled up in that driveway, that computer better be exactly how it was. But uh, <laughs> literally, no, that was me learning DOS and, you know, Windows and, uh, you know, on these uh, different things. And, and, and that's really where, you know, I kind of grew the passion for it. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think that was- Was that it. on an amber screen or <laughs> did they, it, was that pre-color monitors? I think it was color. It was like a, like a, I think I had a 286 or a 386. What is that? Pentium, the, 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 the yeah. early ages of stuff, you know what I mean? Right. And, and it was, it was pre uh, internet. What was it like a, it's called like a BB site or something. It would oh, dial God. up. Oh God. Yeah. 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 I had an Apple two C and I learned <laughs> my father wanted something to do checking on the computer. <laughs> True story. Like I spent like weeks creating like some stupid, crazy version of Quicken in Apple Protos. Uh-huh. that my father was using for his like checking account just from scratch. Like it just did all scratch. the math. It did everything. Yeah. I never told that story, but yeah, I'd still have that floppy somewhere. And it's like dad finances and you load it up and it gives you the previous balance and it tells you like where you're going. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that was a real, that was a real program, man. You, you yeah. <laughs> I played Pango. Like that was this dumb game that like was on two floppies called Pango. That was my, the, the, anyway, the, fact yeah. that, the fact that you, you all even said the word floppy, I haven't even heard that yeah. term in years. Yeah. If anybody's watching this now, that's probably what under the age of 25 or 30, they won't even know what a, what a floppy disk yeah. is. It's nope. amazing. Yeah. But, but yeah, so yeah, I mean, anyway, went to, went to college, went to a historically black college and university, Hampton University, um, but did not finish at Hampton. Went there for about two years. It was a, a couple of reasons why, but one of them is my, my family couldn't afford it. Uh, Hampton is actually a private university. So uh, I kind of got there. I was a, like 20 points away on my SAT from getting a full ride. So uh, came home uh, after uh, the, the two years. I uh, went to community college and real another funny story. I went to uh, a temporary agency because I needed a job in the summertime. I was always one of those type that, you know, I about 16, I had a car and I was working and things. So yep. I knew when I came off of college, I needed a job. Went to the temporary agency and because evidently I could type fast 50 words uh, a minute or whatever, they said, we're going to put you on the help desk at Department of Corrections. I, somehow typing fast correlated to working on the help desk. Um, so literally that was the, the Department of Corrections. That was the start of my tech career. And um, there's two things that came out of that is one, I think that developed this skill set of uh, being able to listen and not just be the nerdy geek. You know, I've been told a lot of times, Darrell, you're not like a typical nerd. I was like, yeah, no, I can, you know, I have people skills. 
And some of that came from in that particular role. I was, uh, my customer base was all over, the, all over the state. So I was literally on the phone with them. And yeah, Tim, they had the, the, the V terminals and I had to walk them through resetting oh, wow. and the yeah. printer wouldn't like work. Like a VT100? Yeah, 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 yeah. Those things, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had to I had to imagine what they were seeing and, and be able to talk and have that calm voice and empathy. So I think that to me, that, that, that really... Uh, uh, I learned a lot of skills in terms of not only working with customers, but then also how do you work between kind of uh, the tech team, but then also working with the business team and being able to kind of work back and forth, which kind of led me to a lot of the roles moving forward. Uh, but the one other thing I'll tell you about that is that is where I found my love for programming. Um, we were actually on the help desk. We had to keep track on paper, you know, how many printers did you reset? How many, whatever. And they needed something better. So I remember pulling up this thing called Microsoft Access and created a database that little did I know I was learning valuable SQL skills at the time and created this little GUI that, you know, when it was five of us on the help desk, whenever you did something, you just click the button and it added it up and tallied it out and I could spit out a report. And, I, and at that moment is when I was like, you know what, I want to be a developer. I want to program because I love, first of all, I love when people say, hey, um, there's no way that this could happen. Or how can you make a job easier than to actually be able to code and build it? So that's kind of where I started at. Um, and then, and then just kind of transcending from there, I said, very much a, a programmer. I was on a Y2K team at the Department of Health, also showing my age. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the movie so, Office Space really resonates with you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very, yeah. very much so. Very much so. I was running around <laughs> keeping track of all the computers because if something happened on January 1, 2000, we had yep. to know where to go. So, uh, yeah. So I, I, I just over the years just you know, uh, you know, really, really grew my skill set. Um, and, you know, one thing that's really, you know, great about the tech field is, and, and, you know, I'm definitely one that you can look at it for and say, uh, this is one of the one fields that you can literally learn what you, as much as you want to learn. As long as you got a device, as long as you got an internet, you can learn how to do so much and you don't necessarily need to go to eons and eons years of school to be able to get those skill set, which is why that is something that messes when, when, I, when I do get to be able to speak, especially to youth, especially to our black and brown youth. And I can be able to say like, look, even if college isn't for you, I'm not sitting here telling you don't go, but even if it isn't, here is one field that you can get into to where you have the full power to be able to uh, as learn as much as you want. And I, I tell them too, you know, I'm witness to it in terms of there has been, because I've been in different positions as CIO, CTO roles where I, you know, hired plenty of people. There's plenty of people that I'd hired, you know, young talent that could actually show me that they could build and do something over said person that had this degree and really couldn't articulate what he was able to do. Yes, you have the degree that shows me you can take tests really well and you can pass classes. But on the other hand, can you, you know, can you build this VNet? Can you set up this database? Can you do all these things? So, um, you know, it's, it's a great field and I absolutely love to be in it. I, I have so much to say in response to that. I, <laughs> I thought I was 
In grad school, I thought I was starting in philanthropy, but I was also building an access-based uh, donation tracking, you know, okay. tool for for our foundation, and parlayed that in the FileMaker Pro. Yeah, that's amazing. I think let's connect this to something that you're okay. doing right now. Okay. Um, I want to ask you when we first met. Uh, mm -hmm. We were working, uh, we, we were talking about Microsoft tech acceleration for black and brown communities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we kind of claimed that sort of instigator in chief kind of title in our right. professional worlds. <laughs> and what I what I'm connecting all of that history to is the story that you told me about how tech acceleration came to be. Right. Um, and, and I'm also connecting it to something Tim said right before we hit record, and that is the dearth of representation in the tech industry. So I, I would love to hear that story again and, and frame it in the context of like what you just said. And that is, I will hire somebody who shows me they can hustle 10 times over 10 with somebody who has just a degree that like shows me they know how to take tests. Right. I mean, because it's all about making sure that everybody has a chance in this country. And I feel like too much of this society has been set up to where uh, you need to uh, accomplish said things that someone else just said you need to accomplish. You need to look a certain way or you need to know somebody who knows somebody. If you fit those categories, then you're going to be successful and you're going to be able to prosper. And then there's just this whole other group of people that just get left out. Um, and, it, and, and I know for me, you know, I kind of merge a lot of understanding of where, you know, a, a lot of the divide is in, in this country. When I got to not got, got into some nonprofit work and, um, you know, that was just prior to me joining and I was CTO for a small nonprofit. And uh, this was a nonprofit where, you know, I'm C-suite, the CEO was also, also black and uh, to be flat out, you know, I could see where we as a nonprofit was being treated differently. Um, not only by the people who was leading it, but then also by necessarily the demographic that we were serving. Uh, so, you know, how, how uh, does that what what does that mean? Like treated differently? How and uh, basically treated differently, definitely in terms of, of funding. Um, and, you know, there, there's a stat that, you know, uh, Black-led nonprofits receive unrestricted funds at a 76% smaller rate than white-led nonprofits. And when we talk about unrestricted funds, that's key because uh, that is typically the funds that you then do those other things with, i.e. tech. Including um, funding you, technology. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Exactly. So, you know, uh, you know, I know for us, you know, we we got very little to zero, um, un, you know, unrestricted funds. Um, you know, I also think that and I think I know we were looked at differently in terms of not necessarily uh, uh, could we run this nonprofit, you know, um, and, and honestly, this is just some of the racial things that we, that we deal with in this country, that if you don't look a certain way and you don't come from a certain background, uh, you can't do the job. Therefore, you know, we're a funder. We're this philanthropic company. We say we'd help. So, yeah, we're going to help. Here's $10,000. 
But on the other hand, you know, your other grantees that we know, we know exactly the work that they're doing and what they're going. There's no, it, it's no problem for them to get six figures, seven figures, et cetera. So, uh, you know, that's, that's some of the things, Tim. And, you know, uh, that's some of the passion that, you know, when I joined Microsoft is, okay, all right, here's this guy who's been techie, really deep, you know, I love to build mobile apps. I love Apple. I can build stuff. Uh, but then also understanding uh, from the nonprofit world, uh, you know, where we can lean in more. So, um, Tracy, to, 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 to your question, uh, you know, as we kind of look back at last summer and the killing of George Floyd and then, and then just the protest that erupted, and I'll tell you firsthand, let me tell you this, that, you know, uh, as, a, as a Black man to actually see what happened across the country, um, I was not only incredibly inspired because I had never seen anything to that scale. You know, there was a few riots. I remember after Rodney King, but it was very isolated. But to see the entire country and to see so many people, it wasn't just Black people in the street. It was white. It was brown. It was uh, straight. It was gay. I don't care what the races were or the ethnicities or demographics. Everybody was standing up and, and, and fighting for something. And, um, uh, you know, for, for, for someone who's, who's, who's grown up in Richmond, Virginia, the home of the Confederacy, and I can go on for days and some of the, uh, the racism that I experienced, KKK level uh, type of racism at an early age of eight to 10, that actually the protests this past summer triggered something. I had a conversation with my, my dad about it that I never had before. Um, but to see some of those, what happened over the summer, you know, to bring back all those feelings to um, the first time ever in my professional life that I've been unfocused at work. You know, we all have things that happen. You know what I mean? You, you know, something's going on with a significant other or all these little things that happen in your personal life. And it, you're kind of a little distracted at work. And then a lot of times it's kind of once you get to work and you start working, you forget about that thing that happened until you get home and then you get smacks in your face. This was the one time for me where I was literally 1000% distracted at work because I felt like I was kind of living two different lives. Here I am, this black man who, you know, I have people out in the street fighting for me and mine, you know what I mean? But then I had to step into corporate derail hat and just kind of ignore all the things that, that, that went on. So, um, you know, our, our, our CEO put out a lot of public racial equity commitments um, and, you know, it kind of came down to the group that I was working with philanthropies and tech social impact and saying, you know, uh, you know, what can we do? How can we lean in on this? And uh, for me, it was, you know, uh, understanding that if we look at what was going on uh, this summer across the country and all these communities that, that, that want to change, if we look at uh, definitely what's going on uh, over the last three, four years, we cannot expect change to happen at some really high level and just pretend it's going to disseminate all the way down to every hood across the country. It's not happening. So we really need to put something together where we, where we look at communities across the country, at the individual communities, in the hoods. Let's narrow down the zip codes and be able to say, 
okay, what is the work that we can do in these particular areas? How can we uplift the people that's in these communities so that they can continue to do the work that they're doing? And technology plays a part in that. Um, and, you know, too many nonprofits, especially our Black-led nonprofits, um, you know, first of all, they're not running them the way they should. If anybody's in nonprofit, you, you, you probably can agree with me that a lot of nonprofits are ran like for-profits. Uh, a right. lot of the same infrastructure has to be in place. So uh, the fact that we, we as Black people lack in the entrepreneurial space, then how can we correlate that to running uh, nonprofits in, in the way that it should be? Uh, but we're very passionate and we understand that if nobody's going to help us, but us. So we, 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 we create these nonprofits, we do these works in the community and things of that sort, um, but we kind of hit a wall, you know, and that wall is, is either in terms of, you know, we're not able to have the biggest impact. We can't go as deep as we want to, or we can't go as far as we want to. And I think, uh, you know, everybody needs to understand the role that technology can play in improving that. So that is one of the things, you know, uh, in my role at Microsoft is being able to tap into a uh, community all across this country and being able to say, um, you know, corporate America is here for you. Here are some ways that we can be able to help you with your tech adoption and acceleration. So that's that. I have one follow-up question, but okay. what's really interesting is, is I was a technology manager at a racial justice nonprofit for about eight years. And mm -hmm. the name itself was so, the, the name of the nonprofit was the Applied Research Center. But we were okay. very clearly about the impact of racial justice in public policy. And I was talking with the CEO and founder one day, mm. and I was like, why don't we have a name that like says what we do? And he's like, you don't understand. Like, this has to fly under the radar screen and mm. look very palatable and very fundable in a world where we're creating waves that people don't wanna like have us create. And right. that, that directly connects to everything that you said about that 76% of funding. So the follow-up I have is when it comes to the work of tech mm -hmm. acceleration now, this is a targeted endeavor, as you've mm -hmm. said, zip code to zip code. Mm -hmm. What has been the response of the organizations? What have been the sort of challenges and what have been the observations that you've made taking essentially corporate power and privilege and going zip code to zip code and saying, we're here for you. What is, what does that look like? And, and what's played out there? Um, it's, uh, I, I will say overall the support has been, or the response has been great. Um, and one of the reasons is, um, you know, at, at those levels, there's a sense of, you know, no one cares about us. So when I say no one is, you know, if we, if we get outside of my hood, who's really paying attention to us? So to be able to, you know, uh, you know, get across like, yes, there is some opportunity. There is some ways that you can work with, you know, large corporations. We can come in and help. The technologies that we have are for you. Uh, and I think that is a huge misconception. Um, you know, especially in the black community that uh, uh, we're not supposed to be able to use the enterprise level stuff. We're not good enough for that. Um, 
and has someone explicitly came out and said that no but look at america look 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 look, look at the, the racial divide and things that so so that is just in our brains if somebody's really successful is is using something well i can't get that i can't use that let me use the the knockoff version or let me use this free one or this uh, i call it a hodgepodge or stuff because that is just what's in my brain that we can use. Uh, and, and then I think also is, you know, the, the lines are really blurred between how you manage things personally and then in your nonprofit or your business, at least within the, in, in the Black community. Back to the point of uh, not necessarily having, you know, that structure. No one comes in to somebody who is, you know, uh, uh, building this mentorship for uh, Black youths on the west side of Chicago and nobody comes in and say, all right, but first I need you to take this, you know, this 20 week course on how to run your nonprofit and create your nonprofit. Those things aren't happening. You know, people are just literally, you know, flying by the seat of their pants and, and, and doing the work. So I think for them is, you know, an appreciation and realization that it is a better way to be able to do the work that I'm doing. Um, and, and, it, and there's some help. Uh, I'm going to take advantage of it. And, you know, just some of the words I'm hearing is, you know, uh, never been given anything any, uh, before. I feel like I've hit the jackpot. Um, you know, those are some of the things that I'm hearing from people that, that were out, out in the field. It's, the reception has been great. And so what you've learned or what I'm hearing, part of what you're learning is this is not just about showing the power and promise of like what happens when we take an enterprise grade technological approach to your organization. But, you know, for folks who are listening, this is also about what happens when we convey the same privilege of education and operational assumptions into organizations that have historically lacked access to those things. To, to your point about nobody says, here's the 20 week course on how to run your nonprofit. So are you actually having to do both now? Like kind of like yeah. dovetail the two together? Yeah, there's a, there's, and you know, part of this is, is in the nature of me is it's, you know, not only just here are the X's and O's of the technology, but you know, uh, help me organizations understand how do you put an IT roadmap in place? How do you budget for IT? You know, what does mm -hmm. staffing look like? What does, you know, all of these type of things that, you know, they didn't even get the cliff notes on that, yeah. you know, they're, they're really starting to, uh, you know, just get the beginnings of some of these concepts of things that they have missed. So, um, uh, you know, that that's just something I do even personally as I'm talking to, to organizations, whether it's nonprofits, I love working with uh, other type of startups and entrepreneurs, um, you know, it's personal. And, and, and those are the things that I like to bring to those because they all kind of have something in common. You know, it's just it's this passion to do something and do it fast and do it well. So, you know, how can it, you know, you know kind of come in and, and bring in those missing pieces for them? So. Well, that, that reminds me that one of our initial conversations, Darrell, was around what we've been discovering as an organization, too, working with nonprofits, that across the board, there needs to be a theory of change approach to implementing rather than the 80s Oracle version of, you know, tech first with discovery. Like, discovery in a world where there isn't a clear understanding of a roadmap that extends past an implementation go live. Right. is, you know, that discovery gets very 
very direct into a, an operational side side note of one person's job rather than looking at a whole where are we trying to go as an organization and you know I think it's one of the reasons that we connected is that felt so fundamentally uh, part of the way that you operate yeah it's it's I mean you hit the dead on the head and the nail on the head you know because you know so a lot of these organizations are strapped for resources strapped for people uh, a, a lot of times it's just, you just get up and you just do your job and you just, you just continually doing it. And then you just hope for these out certain outputs and outcomes, right. but, you know, actually taking that step back, looking at that theory chain say, okay, what is it ultimately that you're trying to get to, you know, you know, and, and what is realistic. And I think for these, for a lot of organizations, just even having someone come to them and being able to uh, pause and say, hey, let's look at the possibility. Where do you want to get to? And then, okay, what are those steps that we need to put in place? Right. Um, that That is truly transformational for a lot of these organizations. Yeah, and the lack of, the lack of margin, I mean, when you're talking about the 76% discount <laughs> that does not go, right? To, um, to those organizations, when you're looking at that, that margin is, is what actually pays for the career development of your second and third line staff, right? And so right. what happens is that you have to go out every day as a C-suite team and try and get funding so that you can do all the things you're trying to do, but without that operational layer in there funding, Basically, you overwork your staff until they're extremely frustrated. And, and then they feel guilty about being frustrated for working for an organization that's trying to accomplish something so good. And by the time they end up having to jet, you know, they, they're, they're so past frustrated that, you know, uh, of being overworked and overlooked. It's, 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 it is a, it's a terrible vicious cycle that you mentioned. And I think, yeah. you know, some of, uh, you know, even my passion is, you know, starting to build some education around the funders and those foundations. And the reason is, you know, uh, you know, as much as if, if we look at that particular stat I gave you, you know, someone can say, okay, you know, these foundations are being, you know, biased, racially biased for these organizations and they're not, they don't care about them. Okay, it could be some percentage of that, but there's also some percentage of it. Let's be let's be honest. These organizations aren't where they need to be. They're deemed as a risk, you know. So you know they they don't want to put the backing into it. So how can we all work together to change that narrative? You know, uh, me trying to put the word out to these foundations, like, look, uh, you know, work with me, work with us to be able to have to change the narrative on how these nonprofits are using tech. How can we help to implement the tech that they need so that they can be in a better position, get you back your grant reports and your outcome numbers that you want? Right. Because literally that's what it is. You know, if you, if you can't show that, hey, you did X, Y, Z, then you're not going to get that funding for next year. So let's all work together and be able to, to, to improve that vicious cycle that you were just talking about, Tim. Yeah, no, and I, I couldn't agree more. We were talking with Lori Freeman um, last month, I think, about the need for, on the one side, you've got platforms marketing that tech is easy. And mm -hmm. then on the other side, you have, um, you have philanthropy that has continued to prop up this, you know, every dollar goes to every kid yes narrative, uh, <laughs> yeah which is just which just False. falls like between those two things 
you technology has no chance of actually being more than transactional. And so you can't get past that. And so I agree. I think that consultants in the middle need to actually own the space of saying neither of those narratives work, guys. We, exactly. we actually look at a larger scale about how do we how do we have a broader vision than transactional implementations and you know operational budgets for one grant cycle, which will not cut it. Exactly. So that, there's my soapbox. No, I, well, it's funny because like on the last recording, I was like, I'm going to like get on a soapbox for a minute and say some (laughs) shit. And then, yeah. So like, I I get it. It's so frustrating. Yeah. I have, sorry, one more. Oh, go ahead. I have two questions for Darrell, by the way, our guest. No. (laughs) Well, we're so fixated on large logos that we forget that a lot of the, a lot of the ground level work is where the most transformation is happening. And so yeah. we need to actually downscale that and, you know, dream small and think big. So, okay, yes. now, I'm, now yes. I am done. <laughs> I, have, I have two questions. One is I'm going to connect to something you said at the start of our conversation and okay. around nonprofit operations and, and just, you know, full disclosure, I have a, I got a master's of public administration in the late nineties. So I've been around and I'm like 40 something years. <laughs> old, right. And like, so my question here is, this was a debate in grad school then. It has always been a debate. I have my own feelings and opinions about it, but I want to hear yours. And that is, how much should nonprofits as mission-centric organizations behave like businesses, which are shareholder-centric organizations? How much should that overlap be? Um, you just said something at the start of our conversation around, you know, nonprofits kind of are acting like small businesses, but I, I want to know your, where's that line for you? Cause we've debated this for years elsewhere. And then I want to ask you some really poignant things about what you want to make sure you get out there. Yeah. And then I'm down to talk about some current events too, but to, but to yeah. answer your question, um, it's one of those things, if you truly, you know, are looking for the longevity of a nonprofit and, and to really scale and have lasting, uh, uh, you know, effects, then it, it, it needs to be as business centric as possible. It's just, it's, it's just not going to survive. There's just too many pieces, you know, from the operations to, you know, fundraising to this. Is this just so many layers that, you know, uh, you know, unless you have, and, and maybe some clarification, you have the people in place that know how to do those jobs really well, uh, because they're going to keep the lights on. They're going to keep everything going. Now, I do feel like as you step down a few levels, the, the, the people who are doing a lot of the grunt work, those are your very much your mission focused people who are, you know, working with the people and, and, and they could care less about some of the things that person cares about that's above them, they're doing the work. But you got to have that layer that's in place that really knows how to, to run the business and keep the lights on and payroll and things of that sort. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, you know, smaller organizations that, you know, don't necessarily have that aspiration of scaling across every community in the country, but instead, no, I want to do the work in Southside Richmond. And I really just want to do the work with these one, this one school or these two schools, you know, so be it, you know, run, run it however the best way that you can, at least from, 
you know, your mission standpoint, because uh, the passion that you're putting it in at that scale is going to be much more effective than bringing some of that extra bureaucracy in. So, yep. Yep. It's a question of scale is what I'm hearing yeah. you say. It's a question of scale and reach and goal. I want to ask you, Darrell, because, you know, I think the origin story of nonprofit tech acceleration and what happened in our world throughout the course of 2020 and now this first week of, you know, 2021, which so far looks like 2020 part two. (laughs) (laughs) I I, want to ask you, like, what is the thing that you would say is missing right now? Missing from the perception or analysis or reach or understanding what is what's missing right now that we need to get in the tech industry about race racial justice and the advancement of these organizations in our society what 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 is it what are we missing you we're missing the lasting empathy and i say that to say um yeah, I, I talked earlier about, you know, how moved I was and, and ecstatic to see what was going on. And, uh, you know, and, and, and even me being a part of, I did a, uh, I turned my uh, photography into being journalism and, and being, in, being out in the protest. But for me and every other probably Black person on this earth, we knew that it was a moment in time and the news cycle would change. Uh, and I think that is was was missing. And, you know, there was a lot of, you know, allyship and all these things that were happening during that time. And we stand with you and we're here for you. And you see, you know, uh, across the country, small, big, you know, different levels of attention of now we're going to do something different. Now we're going to help. And, you know, to be frank and honest, it, it still feels sometimes like just a moment in time. And that, you know, when something, I mean, I, I, let's be honest, even if we look at this summer. That's my biggest then, fear. Yeah. Yeah. Please continue. Even, yeah. Even if we look at the summer and then when things started to die down and then the pandemic, the virus started to pick back up, we, you know, what was happening with the protests was, 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 was a little bit of an afterthought. And, and I think that's, I think that's what's missing. And I think if we look at what's going on right now, if we look at what happened last week, you know, the, 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 the fact that, you know, that many people showed up at, you know, the doorsteps of Congress and did what they did uh, to me just really underscores that, uh, this country really, really has a long way to go. So, uh, you know, the lasting empathy, that is what we're missing. The lasting understanding that there are, you know, non-privileged people. And to me, my definition, white male, anything less than that, you know, anything other than that, white females, black males, black females, LGBT community, every other ethnicity, Native Americans, everybody else, unless you are a, a, a white male, um, there's not this, this, this lasting empathy across this country that there are other demographics of people that we need to be able to pay attention to and provide the support for. So, uh, As a white male, completely agree. <laughs> and 
um, I, I was sad. I expected a different type of election for me. Yeah. Last, last week was horrifying, but what made me really sad is that the, all of the social pressure in the summer did not translate into a, I vote differently now that I've seen. And, and so I really did expect it. And all of my friends of color were like, it's not going to be different. And I was like, just wait and see. And it wasn't at all different. It wasn't. The, 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 the both the presidential race, the Georgia runoff were still basically razor thin. Yeah. Razor thin. And, and, and that is something that, you know, you know, I as a black man, I'm sure other people, we read between the lines and we see that. And it's like, at the end of the day, the country is still not where we really needed to be. It's funny. I woke up Tuesday night into Wednesday, right? So overnight, Tuesday night, we're out in Pacific time zone. So like Georgia was already hitting like five, 6 a.m. And it was very clear that the Democrats were going to win both senator seats. And, and I got up to use the bathroom and I, and I woke up my wife and, and she got up and she saw me looking at my, you know, CNN feed or whatever on my phone. And she's like, what are you looking at? And I literally said to her, I said, I think we need to say thank you, Black America for Georgia uh, right. right now. And oh, she yeah. was like, what? And I was like, yeah, both Senate seats just went Democratic. And she's like, boy, ain't that the truth? And I think what I want to ask you is sort of a wrap up question, but I also want to give you a chance to ask questions or challenges of our audience too. But I went through last Wednesday with this perspective of like, I've worked in the queer communities for God, forever. (laughs) I don't even know how to say it since the late eighties. Like I've seen everything, I've done everything. I'm pretty open about who I am and what I stand for. And I went through last Wednesday and I had this really moment of like, I have tried to be a bridge builder my whole life. And seeing this, I'm done. I'm done building bridges. And, you know, I have a friend whose father was a huge Trumpist and he saw this and his whole life is collapsing around him. And I said to her, like, God, you know, if this were two years ago, I would be like, let me get on the phone with your dad and talk to him. And now Mm. I'm just like, Godspeed, John Glenn. Good luck with that journey. Right. Like, I feel like what I want to ask is like, I know for sure I'm not alone in that. I know for sure it runs very deep in a lot of friends who come from black and brown experiences in this world. What's the real responsibility here now? Where does the real responsibility lie? Because I feel like there are a lot of folks who reached the end of their emotional rope and it connects to everything we've been talking about, money, power, privilege, access. Um, and, and what's your challenge for the tech industry in the world of IT moving forward related to that? Wow, tech and IT. Um, I think it's, you know, continuing to make sure with the tech community that we have people that are not only working and building, but leading the tech community uh, that represent America. Uh, You know, we need to have the diversity um, and it needs to be uh, substantial, um, really substantial. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the 
the, the biggest challenges is going to be. And, you know, are we still, you know, 10 to 20 years away from seeing that? Because, uh, you know, across entities all across this country, you know, whether you look at Congress and people are in there for, for life to, you know, other industries and corporations and, you know, that, that, that top tier of leadership, you know what I mean? Um, the, the, those young, fresh voices that we need, they're still down here. You follow what I'm getting at? Yeah. And, 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 and I think we're still some time away from getting the right people in the right positions. And I think that that just transcends across everywhere in America. Uh, I was uh, chatting with someone on, on Instagram. They responded to one of my, my photos um, about being outraged or something. And, and it was a young, I believe it was a young man. He said, you know, uh, what do I do? I'm 16. You know, no one hears my voice. That's why I don't say anything. And to me, that really underscores the problem um, where, you know, the community that we need, and it's going to be at as early age as possible to be able to educate on, you know, the opportunities in America, you know, how our, our, our legal, our judicial, our, our political system work to put people in certain positions, but they don't think they have a voice. And when you see what happened last week, that continues that message. You know, when I guarantee you, and, and anybody, black, brown, or anything, can you know go into a bar and 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 say something if a, a bar fight breaks out that person is getting arrested you've incited a mob you know you're going down but when the the, the president can say what he say and lead people to congress and literally uh just walk in you know what i mean and and you know rest in peace to the to the officers that passed away and things of that sort but the police presence with that compared to what we saw last summer with BLM. And uh, like I said, I was, I was a part of it. I, I'll tell you this, I'll never forget. Uh, it was early days of protest. It was a Saturday. It was so organized. We started at the, at, the, at the Capitol in Richmond and we was marching towards the Confederate monuments and we were escorted by the police. Mm -hmm. It was very organized. Yep. They escorted us through the city to the monument. We got to one monument, uh, 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 a black man, a veteran, I'll never forget, and the Marines, he spoke, everything was great. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, and it was thousands of people out here that day, we were literally surrounded by police and tear gas just ran out, out of nowhere. And it's, you know, unlawful assembly, you got to go. Tear gas, pepper spray, you know, me personally, multiple times. And I was just a photographer out here trying to capture these moments and literally just assembling in a park. You was met with the full force riot gear, state police, you know, tons of equipment that I've never seen before in my life. But we watched what happened live unfold on national TV in DC. DC is supposed to be the most sacred city to where we're under the impression anything goes down in DC, you got bombers coming, you, you know, the whole, the whole shit's coming to be able to protect DC. Mm -hmm. But look at what we saw. So when I go back to that 16 year old and all those other people, those other youth who, which we need to be able to lead our country in the future, 
they're looking at these type of things and saying, we don't have a voice. So that is how we got to be able to, uh, you know, change the narrative in this country. And if anybody's young that's, you know, listening or, or looking at this, you know, uh, your voice is the one thing that you have. Don't think you don't have it. You know, you just have to find other ways, you know, to be read, to be heard, um, to be seen, et cetera, because we have to put the right people in positions to be able to lead this country in the right place, to lead our tech companies in the right place so that, uh, you know, some of the things, that, this practices that's happening with tech companies that, that, that we don't appreciate, let's get the right people in place so that, you know, uh, the America that we want, we can see one day. So that that's why it matters. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not going to get into it now. There's a lot of overlap in that experience. <laughs> like from my teenage to college age self, I'm like, boy, yeah, that that's right. That's right. That happened. That does happen. This is not about those moments. This is about this moment right now. Uh, exactly. But suffice to say, I know how that feels. And the truth is, is that this is the America we are working with and right. it is raw. It is vulnerable. It is absolutely inequitable. And if there's one thing that I think that we've learned in the recordings that we've done this week is that the assumptions we make and continue to make about who even feels like they can say anything are fundamentally wrong. And those are perpetuated throughout how we approach things like public policy and ultimately like how organizations have access to technology. So right. that is the most important point in terms of like something that the tech industry can solve in some ways. And that is, you know, this isn't just check your assumptions. This is a fundamental rebuild of what it is you're setting out to accomplish as a technology or organization. Um, <laughs> The digital divide is real. That that yeah. that uh, if people don't really understand that term, what it means, what we're trying to accomplish, do your homework because that is that is at that is at the core of it. You know, That's whether right. we're talking about individual youth, the organizations, the nonprofits, et cetera, that that digital divide in tech is 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 increasingly becoming more of an issue because as tech evolves, that divide is 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 growing. So yeah. Agreed. Any last words, Durrell? Tim? Nothing on my side. I think I was a little bit all over the place, but hopefully uh, <laughs> you got a little glimpse in, in, in some of the passion that I put behind uh, this tech yeah. world. Durrell, your story is so important because my I do not have experiences that either of you have had. And, um, and unless, unless we hear stories, I won't ever have those. <laughs> Right, just, right. It will never happen. So I, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story um, and talking about this. And also for leading the work in tech acceleration, that, that program is really inspiring. We are really excited about what it will do um, and is a positive uh, step forward. And I think about the 16-year-old that asked you that question, that this will actually provide tools and answers for that voice to matter more. And um, really, really proud of the work that you're doing. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. I'm Tim Lockie. I'm Tracy Kronzak. And you've been listening to Why It Matters. 
Why It Matters is a thought leadership project of Now It Matters, a strategic services firm offering advising and guiding to nonprofit and social impact organizations. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, check out our playlists, and visit us at nowitmatters.com to learn more about us.